this past week, I looked up some of the greatest speeches in world history, American history, and some of the same speeches kept rising up to the top. One of those was uh, the Gettysburg Address by President Lincoln. It's kind of interesting in that speech, he says, the world will not remember what we say here today. And here we are still talking about what he said there today. It was a very significant speech, very short, 272 words. I'm guessing you're familiar with the opening line, four score and seven years ago. And also the closing line is very well remembered and quoted. He talks about a government of the people, by the people, and for the people that shall not perish from the earth. But I mention this because the book that we're looking at today is made up of several speeches or sermons uh, given by Moses. He's about to die. He knows that. Uh, the, the new generation is about to enter into the land of promise. And Moses is calling on them to remember, remember what God has done for you. And, and he's calling on them to obey in this land. And, and I, I really think that's the main message of Deuteronomy. It's a call to obey in this new land. And so we're going to talk today about obedience, what that means for us. Uh, we're going to focus especially on Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6. So I'm going to ask you if you'd please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4 and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read some select passages from Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6. And I want you to notice the frequency of this call to obey. So let's begin chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. Verse 2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Verse 6, keep them and do them. Uh, verse 14, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Verse 40. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Verse 3, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Look at verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes, which He has commanded you. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. And then finally, verse 25, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray that you will uh, lead, this will lead to greater obedience for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So each week, what we are doing here is looking at a different book of the Bible. And we're in the book of Deuteronomy. We're, we're, we're highlighting the main point of each book and how that main point kind of points to the bigger theme of God the King and God's kingdom. 
And as I mentioned earlier, I think the main point of this book is about obedience. And so I'm just going to highlight several lessons about obeying the king. And we're going to begin by talking about what obedience involves. We see several elements involved with obedience. First of all, obedience involves listening. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. Listening precedes doing. If you don't listen to the command, you're obviously not going to do the command. And all the teachers in the room said, Amen. you got to listen in order to do. Right? There has to be a, a listening first, but let's, let's also recognize in order for there to be a listening, there has to be a speaking. There has to be a voice. There has to be commands to be listened to. And that's what's so incredible here is God speaks to His people and gives them His Word. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. God makes it clear there's no form. He, he is spirit. So therefore, He doesn't want His people to use images in their worship because they're not worshiping images. They're not worshiping idols. They're worshiping Him. And so what does He give them? He gives them His Word. Use the Word. Listen to the Word. This is how we worship. And by the way, we have His Word here in, in written form. And so if you want to hear the Word of God audibly, you can. You just read God's Word and you'll be hearing the very Word of God. It's incredible. God has spoken. We have His Word. The question is, do we read it? Do we listen? Second, obedience involves keeping the words. Look at verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. This word keep occurs something like ten times in Deuteronomy 4-6. through six. And we learn here, keeping it means don't add to and don't take from. Keep them. Right? There's always a tendency, a natural tendency. One, one, one tendency is to add to. This is the extreme of legalism. Adding more than what's required. The other extreme is to take from. That's the extreme of liberalism. We don't have to do all of them. And when you see this tendency toward both extremes, you see it all the way back in the garden in the very beginning. When, when Satan says, you know, oh, you can't eat from any tree? God said, you're not allowed to eat from any? Well, no, that's not what he said. You're adding two. He just said the one tree, right? And then she said, well, we'll, we'll die if we eat from it. Well, surely you won't die. What is that? That's a taking away from and so God's people were called to keep His commandments. Now let's, let's ask this question. Are God's people called to keep His commandments in the New Testament? Absolutely. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Third, obedience involves doing the words. Look at verse 6. Keep them and do them. I found somewhere around 12 to 15 times just in Deuteronomy 4 through 6, where it basically says, do them. And I know it sounds cliche, but you know, we just have to say it. What does it look like to obey? Well, it, you do what God says to do. And you don't do what God says not to do. At the end of the day, that's what obedience is. Are we called to do the commandments in the New Testament? Absolutely. Listen to the very words of Jesus. John 15, 14. You are my friends if... You do what I command you. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a relationship here between loving and doing. If you love me, 
you will do what I've commanded. And so this is the fourth point I want to make. Obedience involves the heart. Obedience involves love. There's not a dichotomy between doing and loving. It's, it's both and. And this, and this both and doesn't begin in the New Testament. This both and begins in the Old Testament. And we see it especially in Deuteronomy. Loving involves doing. And doing involves loving. And, and you can't really do one without the other. And, and perhaps the most well-known verse in Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So when he says with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, what's the point? The point is with everything you have. You know, it's not talking about how many different parts there are of you. <laughs> However many parts there are of you, you, you owe it all to him. You give it all to him. You love him with everything. Jesus said this is actually the greatest commandment. Love God with everything that you have. I think one of the reasons why it's the greatest, I think there's a number of reasons why it's the greatest. One reason is, if you do love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it will lead to actual obedience. You will do everything else. And by the way, the flip side is also true. Anytime you don't do what you're supposed to do, it's always a revealing you're not loving Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If, if we really loved God, like He calls us to, we really would do what he tells us to do. Now I can imagine someone saying, you know, that sounds good, loving God with everything I have, but I mean, how, how do I really do that? I mean, let's speak practically. If I give God everything, if I'm one of those kind that gives God everything, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I still got to work. I got a job. I got to put food on the table. I got a family. I still got to go to school. I got to do, you know, I got to work hard at school and be a good student. Or, you know, can I still be involved in my hobbies? Right? And so there's, great, there's a great movie that illustrates the answer to this question. The, the movie is a classic movie called Chariots of Fire. And we see this contrast in the movie between two people, two characters. It's based on a true story, by the way. Eric Liddell was a Christian, and he runs for the glory of God. He, he says in the movie, quote, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He loved running. He ran for God's glory. At the same time, he didn't have to run. It, it didn't drive him. It wasn't everything to him. And the proof is, he had this conviction, a personal conviction, that he shouldn't run on Sundays. So he, just, he didn't run on Sundays. And, and in the 1924 Olympics, they happened to hold his event on a Sunday, the 100-meter race. And he would have won the gold, hands down. Uh, but he followed his conviction. And for him, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength meant not running on Sundays, and therefore he didn't run in the 1924 Olympics. It, but it didn't crush him. Right? He, he, he was willing because he loved God first. Now he is contrasted with another character in the story named Harold Abrahams who, who is quoted in the movie as saying, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. He also ran the 100 meter. And he said, for those 10 seconds running that race, that defines my existence. Whether, I, whether I'm, you know, uh, basically, you know, whether I'm right or not. This is my meaning. This is my purpose in life, to run and to win. And by the way, he's miserable. In the movie, he's miserable. He hates it. He's, he, he hates life uh, because this is everything. It consumes him. Winning the race, running is everything to him. By the way, he runs and wins the gold. 
And by the way, Liddell wins the gold at the 400 meter, a different race that happened on a different time outside of Sunday. But I just want to point out, both of these men ran. Both of them were really good. Both of them happened to win gold. The difference is, one of them enjoyed it and enjoyed life, and one of them hated it and was miserable. And what's the difference? Harold Abrams, his God was running. That's where he tried to find his happiness. That's where he tried to find his meaning in life. And therefore, it made him miserable. Liddell, on the other hand, loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it actually made him a better runner for it. But, but running wasn't everything. And therefore, when running couldn't be for him everything, he wasn't crushed by it. So here's the point. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength doesn't mean you can't be a good student in school. It doesn't mean you can't be a good uh, husband or wife. It doesn't mean you can't be a good worker at work and make money. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't have hobbies. In fact, it's actually just the opposite. If you really love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll actually be better student and be a better parent and be a better father and be a better mother. And because these things won't consume you. They won't be your everything. What's the problem with making something else your everything? It's, it's not worth it. It's not worthy of your everything. Nothing in this world is worthy of you giving everything to it. And the reality is you're created in such a way that you're giving everything to something or someone. You right now are loving something or someone with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If it's God, you're satisfied. If it's not God, if it's anything else, even something else good, like running or working or being a good husband or being a good wife, even if it's a good thing, if it's your everything, if you're finding your meaning in it, you're miserable right now. And the reason why you're miserable right now is because God is not everything to you. He's not your, 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 he's not your ultimate meaning. You're not loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obedience involves recognizing He is ultimate. He deserves it all. Loving Him with everything. And when you do, by the way, guess what? You'll listen, you'll keep the words, and you'll do the words. This is what obedience involves. Second, let's talk about teaching obedience. I found the word teach, I think, six times in Deuteronomy 4 through 6. Uh, look, well, look with me, for example, at chapter 4, verse 14. It says, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. And Moses is about to die once again. The, the people need to be taught because he's not going to be with them. God has been giving him the commands. He's been teaching them. He says, when you go over, you need to keep teaching. You don't say, we got it. We already know. We've already heard it. You've already given us the sermon once. No, you got to keep teaching. You got to keep telling. You got to keep speaking. And there are certain people who are designated as the teachers. In this context, it was the priests. It was the Levites. But there's another group that's also identified as the teachers, and that is the parents. The parents and the grandparents are supposed, they have a special instruction to teach, specifically to teach their children. And that, by the way, is the principle behind the fifth commandment. The Ten Commandments, number five, it, this is the principle. Look, look with me at chapter 5, verse 16. The fifth commandment. You're familiar with it. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
Now, I want to point out that the main point of the verse is not just simply God values children who obey their parents. That's certainly there. But there's a bigger principle behind this. The principle is the parents, it's assumed, are going to be providing the instruction, the teaching. They're going to be living out the faith. They're going to know the faith. They're going to know the commandments. And therefore, they're going to be teaching the children. And so what are the children supposed to do? They're supposed to be obeying their parents, which means what? Listening to what their parents are saying. And the assumption is, once again, the parents are teaching them the faith. The, the, the point here is not just simply obey your parents for obedience sake, though that's, that's certainly there and it's certainly true. The, the point is, hey, I want you to live long in the land. If that's going to happen, here's what's got to take place. The parents have to know the faith. They have to know the commandments. They have to know the teaching. And they have to teach the children. And the children have to listen. So children, honor your father and mother. Listen to them. Obey them. And if you do, you will live long in the land. Why? Because you're, you're practicing the faith that was handed down to you. And it comes with a promise. You'll live long. Ephesians uh, 6, 2 says this is the first commandment with a promise. If you'll do this one, there's a promise connected with it. You will live long. You'll live long in the land. And so there's a, the parents have an extremely crucial, important role in teaching obedience. Look, for example, at chapter 6, verse 7. He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So parents are supposed to be teaching their kids the faith, the commandments all the time. The assumption here is the kids are with you. They're with you, so as you're waking up and as you're going to bed and as you're coming and as you're going, you're supposed to be talking about these things. So he's not even saying here, you need to have a devotional once a day, though that's a great thing to do. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying you need to take your kids to church, though that's a great thing to do and you should. But that's not what he's saying. You, you, don't, you don't obey this simply with the one-time devotional or going to church. You obey this by talking to your kids about life, about the faith, about how to navigate life and how to take biblical principles and apply them to the situations that they're going through. This is what biblical parenting looks like. And, and then there's a promise with it. If you do, then they'll learn. And then when you're not in the picture anymore, which you're not going to be at some point, they know how to do it because you've taught them. They've seen it. They've heard it. They've, they've learned it. There was an opinion piece in, in the New York Times recently the title was School is for Everyone. The author is Anya Kamenetz. She's a, an author, author of many books. A lot of the subjects she writes on relates to education. And she was very critical in this article of conservative parents trying to influence uh, public schools and school boards. And she, she says, quote, the parents who are showing up at school boards yelling about critical race theory and pronouns are trying to get public schools to bend history, reality, and values to their liking. So here's an, the irony. She says, the parents who are arguing for traditional pronouns are the ones who are bending history and reality. <laughs> A little bit of irony there, I would say. But, but she goes on and she says, I disagree with them vehemently, but I also want them to stay in the argument. It would be far worse if these parents went home and created their own schools, 
because their children would then grow up with one set of unchallenged beliefs, while my children and the children of like-minded people would grow up with another, emerging as adults who have no hope of understanding one another, much less living together peacefully. So she argues our country needs all kids to go to the same school because they will then learn common shared values. And those commonly shared values, according to her, are things like critical race theory and the proper use of nouns. And she says the worst case scenario would be parents not having their kids involved in that education and instead removing them because it would not be good for the society. And so here's the point I want to make. I want to be really clear. Whatever your family chooses to do in terms of education, whether you choose public school, whether you choose private school, whether you choose homeschool, I just want to make the argument, you as the parent are responsible for instructing your kids in the faith. You're responsible for instructing your kids in in the Christian commands and the Christian teachings. And I think it's good for us to just recognize as parents that there are some out there who see their job as undoing what we're trying to do. And they see that as being for the good of the society. And we just need to know that. Like you just need to know that there are, there are people who are thinking that they need to undo what it is you're trying to do, or hopefully you're trying to do with, with your children. And so our job is to teach our kids. And unfortunately, we live in a day today where that means having to teach them pronouns. This is what he means. This is what she means. I mean, that, that's, you know, our previous generation didn't have to think about that. We do. And so it's tough. It's really tough. And when do you do that? And how do you do that? It's hard. And, and it's good for us to know that. Right? So practically, what does this look like? Uh, when your kids are really young, you're the filter. Like you are their filter. God puts you there in their life to be the filter. You decide. What do they hear? What do they not hear? What do they see? What do they not see? It's, it's on you. Right? And then as they get older, you're, you're trying to teach them. You're trying to train them. What do we watch? What do we not watch? Why? And if we are going to let this come in, how do we think about it? How do we, how do we filter it? How do we, how do we think about this from a Christian perspective? So you're teaching them. You're ta- this is what you're talking about. And then, one point, you're not there anymore. And that's, that's good. That's a part of the process. You're not there. But the question is, have they learned the filter? Do they have a filter? Do they know what to say? I'm not letting this in. Oh, I am letting that in. I'll let this in, but I'm going to let it in with some caveats. I'm going to understand what's going on here. And hopefully, that, 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 that's the job. Teaching is crucial. What does it look like to obey? Teaching is a crucial part, and parenting is a crucial part of obedience. Let's talk now about the goodness of God's rules. Uh, we, we might be inclined to say, you know, the rules really at the end of the day are pretty strict. And boy, they sure do kind of restrict life and they sure do restrict liberty. But it's just the opposite. The rules are good. They're righteous. They're wise. They're, they're given for our good. And he talks about this. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Look at verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous 
as all this law that I set before you today. God's rules are good. They're gracious. When his people follow them, they make him look good. And then the surrounding nations are supposed to look at that and say, wow, you guys have good laws, wise laws, righteous laws. How is that? You know, sometimes we almost seem to kind of make fun of some of these laws, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we say, boy, that's so strict, that's so severe. It's really not. It's actually very progressive for its time. It was very progressive. It's not whoever's strongest wins. It's not whoever's got the most money and the most wealth is the one. It's not whoever can pay off the judge gets to go free. This is a very progressive idea. It's wonderful. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. It's an eye for an eye. No matter who you are, no matter what your role is in society, an eye for an eye, the, the, the punishment meets the crime. It's a good law. It's, it's a righteous law. It makes sense. At some level, we all want it. Like We want what's fair. We want what's right. And so these laws are good, and they're given to God's people in the context of grace. Look, look with me at chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. He says he rescued you out of the fire. You were dead and dying and enslaved in Egypt. God came in and delivered you and saved you so that he can be with you and you can be with him. And now it's in the context of that salvation. It's in the context of that grace. It's in the context of that that he comes to you and says, this is how this is going to work. This is what it looks like to live before me. Here are the rules. Here are the commands. Here are the statutes. You know, the most unloving thing you could do for your kids would be to say, you know, especially at a certain age, you just do what you want. Follow your heart. And however much TV you want to watch, fine. However much internet you want, fine. Whatever you want on the internet, fine. You know, you want to do school, don't do school. Just follow your heart. Whatever makes you happy, we'll just do that. That's our parenting philosophy. You're going to turn out a kid, probably, you know, some kids do grow up in that environment and they, they overcome and it's wonderful. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're setting your kid up for failure. You're setting your kid up for death, really, if you have this mentality that just do what you want. In a similar kind of way, how much more so would it be unloving if God just said to us, just do what you want. Just follow your heart. I'm sure it's good in there. So just kind of do what you want and I'm sure it'll work out okay for you. That's just not how it works. He says, you don't know what you want. You, you, you have a hardened heart. You're going to choose rebellion every time over me. And so he comes in and saves us and rescues us and gives us the laws we need that are gracious, that are good, that, that, that lead to life. He says, you'll live long in the land if you follow these good rules. And this brings us finally to talk about the consequences and the future. Moses makes it clear it will be for their good and their benefit if they'll, if they'll follow these rules. We, we have a phrase at our house, obedience brings blessing. All you have to do is obey. The rules are pretty fair. Just obey and it'll be good. Obedience brings blessing. And we see something very similar here. Chapter 4, verse 40. Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. Notice that phrase, prolong your days. I think I found something like five times in Deuteronomy 4 through 6 where he talks about living long, prolonging your days. It will go well for you if you do this. And the alternative is also true. 
He says, if you don't, God says, I will actually come in and remove you from the land as a form of punishment against you. And he, he literally says, I'll destroy you. And by the way, I hate to be a spoiler alert, but that's what happens. It doesn't take any time at all. And they start turning to idolatry. They forget. They turn away from the commandments. And we're going to, as we keep going through the rest of the books, we're going to see this storyline. They're going to be removed from the land. And in fact, you don't even have to read the rest of the story to know it's going to happen. Moses actually tells them it's going to happen. Look at chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Moses says to the people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So it's going to happen. Uh, Assyria is going to come in and remove them. Babylon is going to come in and remove them. And it's, it's telling, it, it's, it, there's a lesson there. It's, it's the repeated pattern of the hardness of heart, sin, and God's punishment for it, exile. And the message is this, something more is needed. The heart is too hardened. There's a need for something more. There's a need for someone more. There's a need for another Moses type to come along and do something better and do something greater than what's happened. And that's exactly what happens. And the book of Deuteronomy talks about this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. This is God speaking to Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 18. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We learn from the book of Acts that this, this prophet is Jesus Christ. He's raised up from among his brothers. Who are his brothers? What does that mean? He's a son of Adam. He's a son of Eve. He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of Jacob. He's a son of Judah. He's a son of David. He's like his brothers in every way, yet without sin. He, he was made like us. And, and notice it says, He will only speak the words that I put in His mouth. I will put my words in His mouth. Remember when Jesus says, I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. What's Jesus saying? I'm the prophet like Moses who came to do something greater than Moses. First of all, Jesus obeys the commandments perfectly. He has the words in His mouth. He obeys the commands. He's sinless. God made Him who had no sin. He's sinless. Why is that significant? Because of what He can do for us as a sinless one. He can take the punishment for us as our substitute. So we deserve the punishment. We've all been hard-hardened. We've all rebelled and rejected and disobeyed. And we deserve to be removed from the land. Destroyed. Unbelievably, Jesus comes sinless. And how is He treated? He's removed from the land. He's literally taken outside the camp and destroyed though he didn't deserve any of it. Why? So that we who deserve to be removed from the land can actually be brought back to it. And we can live long in the land. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Why? Well, first of all, he's God's son. He's the king. And yet he was willing to be removed, exiled, take the punishment. Why? So that we could be brought in. Wow. 
Moses couldn't do that. Secondly, Jesus is greater because of what happened after his resurrection. After his resurrection, he ascended and is seated as the king today. And as the king, he sent his spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, into the hearts and lives of his people so that we could have changed hearts. How do our hearts get changed? The problem is we have hard hearts. How does it get changed? The spirit of Jesus Christ gets put into our our hearts. And that's how it gets changed. And guess what? The book of Deuteronomy talks about this too. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God solves the problem of our hardened hearts. How? First of all, by sending His Son to die so it just melts us. It melts our heart of stone, doing for us what we couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do. And then secondly, He sends His Spirit in to give us a new heart so that we actually want to obey. How do we, how do we become people who want to obey? Because God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. You know you have the Spirit of Christ in you when you want to obey, and the reason why you want to obey is because of all that God has done for you. See, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, here's the natural tendency. You're going to tend to go to one or two extremes. And this is important to identify. Is this me? One extreme that people naturally go to is they say, look, God is gracious and Jesus died on the cross, therefore the commandments are sort of optional. You know, I don't really have to do them. I'm not really expected to do them. I can continue to live however I want to live. I can continue to think however I want to think. I don't need to be changed. I just want to tell you, that is the furthest thing from New Testament Christianity. Show me any place in the Bible that remotely talks like that. right? And I'll gladly repent of what I'm saying. But the heart naturally is inclined to want to think like that. I don't have to do anything. God is gracious. I don't have to do anything. The other extreme that people tend to go toward, naturally go toward, is something like, I have to obey. Because when I obey, then I sort of put God in my debt, and then He has to do for me. You know, He has to be good to me. He has to bless me because I've obeyed. And I just want to say, that's also the furthest thing from New Testament Christianity. There's no sense in which you, you, you can put God into your debt. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not the pattern of, of New Testament Christianity. It's not the pattern of how things work in the book of Deuteronomy or the Old Testament. The pattern is more like this. Look at what God has done for you. Just stand there and stand in wonder and awe at, at all that God has done for you. He saved you from the fiery furnace by sending His Son, the King, to take the punishment that you deserve so that you can go free and you can have a heart that wants to obey Him. Stand there and meditate on that and consider that until you can't help but say, I want to obey. I want to listen. I want to keep the words. I want to do them. I want to teach them to others, especially my children that God's put under my influence. I want to live long in the land. And you will, because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because He first loved you. Let's pray.